Now, I wonder, what what would you say are the most hopeless and obsolete jobs in the world? Plenty of candidates come to mind, but what are the the most redundant activities, the one with no future prospects to them at all? I wonder, for example, what it feels like dedicating your life these days to making Polaroid film uh, in an age of digital photography, Uh, or perhaps uh, someone working on the the print edition of the, the Yellow Pages Uh, in the age of the internet. I wonder what it felt like to be a cavalry officer at the beginning of the First World War in the new age of barbed wire and trenches and machine guns. What would it feel like uh, to have that sort of future ahead of you? Well, I don't need to wonder very much, really, because it is a frequent nagging thought in the Christian life. The nagging thought that if... What if there's no future to this? I'm in the end of my first year at Christchurch and it's been a very good year, a good year. Uh, But it's been a hard year. And others I know have had even harder years, much harder years. And this is the nagging thought that can plague us from time to time. You know, this had better be true. Otherwise, that was an awful lot of effort wasted in vain. It's a frightening thought for Christians, isn't it? Is, is the most hopeless and redundant activity in the world Christianity? Have I got myself caught up into something utterly pointless? Uh, so it's very good timing in God's providence that we're reaching uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the, the end of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the, to the Church of God in Corinth. And that we're reaching that this week, um, this letter. Uh, to a group of young and, frankly, quite immature Christians uh, in this major seaport in the first century Greece. It is one of the great peaks of the New Testament. It's, it's magnificent. And as I gear up to preaching on it this morning, I feel a little like a climber in the Himalayas at the base of K2 or Everest, wondering if I'm, I'll go, get anywhere near the summit. But this is a chapter that, more than any other in the Bible, will help us tackle head-on the fear that everything we're doing is in vain. Now, it's uh, such a long chapter that we haven't read it all this morning, uh, which in some ways is a little unfortunate because it's actually only right at the end of the chapter that Paul says explicitly why he's saying what he's saying, what he wants the Corinthians to do with what he's just said. Uh, So we do need to begin uh, this morning by skipping ahead to the very last verse of the chapter. That's verse 58, which you'll need to turn over for. Um, Let me read that to you. This now is the goal of everything that Paul has been saying in the previous 57 verses. He says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I hope you can see that there are two parts to that. There's a, there's a command part, there's the action part, there's the exhortation, the stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully, wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord. Um, that exhortation, I think we can say, encompasses everything that Paul has been saying in the letter you know, across the previous 14 chapters, including, including all that he's said about fleeing from sexual immorality, from fleeing idolatry, Everything he said about taking on an attitude of, of long-sighted love when they meet together. In other words, this is a, a summary exhortation for the whole letter. 
But there's a second part, isn't there? There's a reason why the Corinthians need not hold back in all these things. Look at the last part of the verse again. How can you do this? Because you know, you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Before I can go for it wholeheartedly in serving the Lord, I need to be sure that what I'm doing is not in vain. And it's that second part that Paul is addressing uh, in this chapter. But why does he have to do that? Well, you can see that there's a problem in the Corinthian church. You can see it for yourself if you look back to, turn back a page and look back to verse 12 of the chapter. Verse 12. Paul asks this question, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There are some saying there's no resurrection. Now the resurrection of the dead is a is Christian belief that there will be some future time when everyone who has died will be raised and those who belong to Jesus Christ will get, be given uh, an enduring life, an eternal life. It is, uh, I grant you, a staggering suggestion. Uh, but Paul is claiming in this chapter that it is and always has been a central and essential part of what it means to be a Christian. So you can see the stakes are very high here. If there are people in Corinth saying there is no resurrection, then that undermines everything that Paul has been saying and doing. If there's no resurrection, then all his work and all the Corinthian response to it has been utterly in vain. Now, in first century Corinth, those saying that there is no resurrection probably haven't quite yet escaped from the culture around them. We can empathise with that, I think, isn't it? It's difficult to extract yourself from the way the world around you thinks. And in the ancient world, it was widely maintained that you could split people into two. You could split them into their soul on the one hand and their body on the other. Uh, The soul was something that uh, was immortal, could last forever. Uh, But the the body certainly couldn't. It was mortal, decaying would eventually disappear. Now, if that's the way that they're thinking, it explains all sorts of things about uh, what Paul has been saying about the Corinthians earlier in the letter. It explains why they've been treating their own bodies as kind of unimportant and disposable. It may even explain their lack of love for one another too, as they treat other people as uh, disposable and dispensable. So that was back then. You might well ask, ask, uh, how does that relate to our our situation here in Fullwood. You see, there's no one, as far as I know, here in this church family saying there is no resurrection. That's perhaps out of uh, of the fear that we've rigged up the building with trapdoors that uh, uh, open expel you instantly at such a suggestion. Nevertheless, it's not something that I hear people saying. There is no resurrection. However, to say that there is no resurrection is the belief of our wider culture. And it's certainly a belief that's crept into our denomination. So in 2005, for example, a survey reported that 20% of Anglican clergy don't even believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, let alone of anyone else. But even for us, even for us, as I was suggesting at the beginning, the thought, the thought that there may not be a future resurrection may well plague us from time to time. And the symptoms of that are going to show up in our behaviour from day to day. See, once the the resurrection ceases to have its proper weight in our thinking or our decisions, that has an impact on the way we live and we can see it 
So we see ourselves starting to invest in the world now, in place of the world to come. And we do that just in case all this uh, isn't true after all. So Paul wants to deal with such thoughts and defend the real bodily future resurrection of the dead. Now, we've got two weeks to look at his argument, uh, which I think we can split into two. Uh, so next week we're going to look at the second half of the chapter and Paul's argument that to say and believe that there is a bodily resurrection is something that makes sense. You know, it's intelligible. Um, it's coherent. And we can deal with all of the objections that people might raise against it. Uh, but this week we're going to see Paul reasserting that, that there will indeed be a resurrection from the dead. What's more to say that there is no resurrection is an absurd thing for a Christian to say. It's ridiculous. It contradicts everything that the gospel is about. Now, this does seem to be the emphasis in the first half of the chapter. Paul's saying something like this, either there's no resurrection, in which case we may as well give up and join the world around us, or there is, in which case we believe it unreservedly, empowered to work wholeheartedly for the Lord, because if that, in that case, that work is not in vain. You can see perhaps on the outline that I've arranged what Paul says in in four arguments in two pairs. Uh, Paul is nothing if not thorough, you may have noticed. Uh, But this, if you like, is a summary of what Paul says in this first half of the chapter. First of all, this is the first 11 verses. We know that people can be raised because Christ was raised. And Paul reminds them that they believed this. You believed it and it saved you, he says. So related to that, this is 12 to 19 now, to say that there is no resurrection would make your belief and faith pointless. Second, this is verses 20 to 28, we know that people not only can be raised, but will be raised because Christ was raised, because he was raised to defeat death. That was what he was raised for. So related to that, uh, verses 29 to 34, to say that there is no resurrection will make your whole Christian life, your whole Christian commitment utterly pointless. Let's uh, follow Paul's argument uh, briefly, uh, step by step. First of all then, we know that people can be raised because Christ was raised and you believed it, says Paul. Quite suddenly, but towards the end of his letter, Paul says this, this is verse 1 of the chapter. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Uh, What was this gospel? We can see it from verse 3 onwards. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then Paul goes on to say he appeared to many others, including, last of all, himself. uh, Paul himself is is a personal eyewitness of this fact. So this was the gospel then, the victory message uh, that Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians. Christ died because of the problem of sin. He was firmly dead and buried. But before death could get a grip on him, he was raised from death back to life. But it's not just the the kind of compelling eyewitness evidence that that Jesus really was alive that Paul stresses here. Uh, And it's not just the the fact that all of this uh, fulfills um, uh, the scriptures in such an amazing way, although he stresses that as well. Both those things are uh, extremely impressive. 
It's not just those things. It's the fact that the Corinthians did actually believe this. You know, they heard this and they believed it. And Paul reminds them of that at the beginning. Verse 1, you received it and you took your stand on it. Then again at the end, verse 11, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. Christ was raised. You did believe it. Believe it afresh and know that your belief in the Lord is not in vain. What's more, this is the related argument in verses 12 to 19, to say that there is no resurrection would make your belief then pointless. In other words, it would cut out the whole point of believing in the first place. Look, for example, at verses 16 and 17 over the page. Paul says this, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So do you follow the argument here? If there's there's no such thing as resurrection, if it's impossible, then not even Jesus was raised. But here's the rub. If that's the case, then we are still in prison. We are still in slavery uh, to sin and death. It goes like this. God is very clear in the Bible that the reason why we die is because we sin. That is, we rebel against our creator, the life giver, turning away from the giver of life. And of course, what do you expect happens when you turn away from the source of life? Well, of course, you die. And it's also very clear in the Bible that because we're going to die, we sin all the more. Aware of that shrinking time ahead of us, we fight and squabble to make the most of it for ourselves. Because we sin, we die. Because we die, we sin. It's a vicious, ugly cycle. But it was the hope of an escape from that cycle that attracted the Corinthians to Jesus in the first place. Because you see, Jesus entered into that cycle. He came and he died for sins. But he broke out of it. He was raised to life. And the message of that resurrection provides the hope for others to escape from that too. It cuts the chains of sin and death. It does away with the imprisonment. It does away with the slavery. So says Paul, don't say, or even imply by the way that you live, that there is no resurrection that would leave you dead in your sins. Don't say that, or even think that, and know that your belief in the Lord is not in vain. Now just let me uh, pause here and say something uh, to you if this is new to you. Let me just say that in my opinion, my humble opinion, you would have to be very sure that there is no resurrection before ignoring these kinds of claims. We all know the pain of living under the shadow of death. I think we're feeling feeling this very keenly at the moment as a church family, as we've heard the news of deaths this morning. But that's not just us, of course. That's the world we live in. It is a world reeling in grief and pain at the presence of death. We also all know the pain of struggling to love, just how hard it is to love one another. But the Christian claim is this, that there is an escape from that. 
There is a rescue from that vicious cycle. You know, you may be struggling to, to believe that that's possible, but are you sure that it's not true? Say you're escaping from a, from a burning building. You're running down a corridor. The flames are warming your back. And you come up against a shut door. It's the door to, to the outside. But you're almost certain that it's locked and you don't have a key. Maybe you're, you're really certain. Maybe you locked it yourself earlier. But what do you do at this point? What do you do? Lacking imagination, perhaps. Uh, you phone a friend. She says, I think it's not locked. But you think that she can be ignored. She's naive. She's ignorant. Perhaps she's even trying to manipulate you, you think. So you ignore her. What do you do now? Do you search, perhaps, for some alcohol to drown your sorrows and numb the pain in the last few moments? Do you look for some idle diversion to make the most of those last few moments? Do you calm yourself and try to come to terms or peace with your fate? No! You do none of those things. Surely, surely, you check the door. Even if in your view there's only a sliver of a chance of it being unlocked, you investigate properly to escape from the chains of sin and death for there really to be a future resurrection from the dead. It's such a wonderful possibility that even if you have massive doubts about it, it's worth looking into and looking into properly. But let's uh, go back to Paul's argument, because he certainly is not done yet. Come on, he says, this is uh, verses 20 to 28. We know that people will be raised, because Christ was raised, and that, well, that's what he was raised for. The resurrection of Jesus means that we not only know that people can be raised from the dead, it's an example of that, they will be raised from the dead, because that's what Jesus has been raised for. You can see how keen Paul is to squash the implication that Christ hasn't been raised. It's very, very strong in verse 20, isn't it? We could translate that something like this. Christ is indeed raised from the dead! Exclamation mark. Moreover, he has been raised, you can see, for a purpose. He's been raised as the first fruits. That is, he's been raised as the first of much new life to come. This, then, is nothing less than the beginning of a, of a whole new creation. Uh, within the, instead of Adam bringing death, says Paul, Jesus bringing life for many. And the imagery Paul uses here is to present this as something like a great military victory, but on a cosmic scale. Now we're going to think a little bit more about this great victory at, uh, at some greater length next week. But for the moment, just take a look at the sheer scale of what's going on here. Verse 24, Jesus is destroying all dominion, authority and power. Verse 25, he's putting all his enemies under his feet. But verse 26, if that militaristic language disturbs you, uh, do see that this is no ordinary battle that Jesus is fighting on our behalf. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Paul's presenting what Christ is doing for his father as something like what a Roman general might do for his emperor. So a Roman general might uh, be sent out, say, to conquer some troublesome foreign territory, and perhaps he succeeds in doing that. Perhaps he succeeds in winning a great victory, putting all of those enemies under his feet. 
And uh, then he takes back the spoils and this new dominion to his emperor, to the one who sent him. So it is with Christ, says Paul. We need a cosmic military victory, bringing the spoils back to God the Father who sent him. But this is nothing less than a victory over death itself. It's a staggering thing, a cosmic thing. And the cosmic battle that Jesus is winning makes, I suspect, the latest Harry Potter film seem like something like a a glove puppet show. Christ has been raised and he is hard at work, engaged in a cosmic battle, defeating death. Believe it and know that your belief in the Lord is not in vain. And again, there's a second part, part to this argument. This is verses 29 to 34. All this means that to say that there's no resurrection would make everything pointless. It would make your whole Christian commitment pointless, says Paul. Render everything that Paul has done, everything that the Corinthians have done, useless and purposeless. Now we need to pause here just very briefly here because uh, verse 29 you can see, uh, which in our versions uh, says, um, now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? Uh, We do need to admit that at first glance, that's quite a puzzling verse. A friend was telling me on Friday night that um, he knows of 15 different possible explanations for what that verse might mean. That's quite intimidating, isn't it, when you hear uh, things like that. But to cut a very long story short, I do think the best way of making sense of it is, as as I put it on your handout, Paul's talking about people who have been baptised, literally, on account of the dead. Why have they done that? Well, in the context, I think it probably makes best sense to say that they've done that as an expression of Christian commitment in order to escape from the cycle of sin and death that Paul's been talking about earlier, we just looked at. So Paul's saying something like this. He's saying, if there's no resurrection, what will those do, all those who do, who have been baptised, who have become Christians on account of the fear of being trapped among the dead, the fear of being trapped in the cycle of sin and death going on forever? the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on account of that fear? If there's no resurrection, then that commitment to Jesus in baptism was pointless. Likewise, if there's no resurrection, then all Christian endurance and suffering is in vain. Again, it's pointless. Paul's own suffering, for example, is in vain. Verse 30, this is what he pours out. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? if there's no resurrection from the dead. All that battling that he's done throughout his ministry, and he's looking back to fighting those opponents that he fought in Ephesus, what was the point of that? Suppose I'm making uh, Polaroid cameras, and someone hands me a report uh, that gives a forecast that the demand for Polaroid cameras next year is going to be zero. Do I continue to make them? I'm paying for the printing and delivering of yellow pages and I'm reliably told that nobody even currently uses them and nobody is going to use them in the future either. Would I continue to go to the expense of doing that? I'm a cavalry officer in the First World War and I come over the hill and I find the way impossibly blocked by trenches and barbed wire. Do I continue? I'm an ordinary Christian and somebody whispers in my ear, there is no resurrection. I start to believe that 
Would I continue? Of course not. So don't listen to that voice, says Paul, verse 34. Come back to your senses as you ought. It isn't true. There is a resurrection. To suggest otherwise is, well, frankly, it's sinful, ignorance, and shameful. It undermines and opposes everything God is really actually doing in the world. Don't say, or even imply by the way you live, that there is no resurrection. Don't say that or think that. And know then that your belief and labour in the Lord is not in vain. So what can we say in summary here? And what can we say about what Paul is doing here to help us to, to sober up, to come to our senses? Uh, well, as we finish, I think we can summarise it this way. He's encouraging us to do this. It's all about facing the void but embracing the truth. On the one hand, there's facing the void. Paul has taken us right to the edge of things, hasn't he? It's been quite striking. He's got us to think through the consequences of there being no resurrection from the dead. And he wants us to be horrified by what we see. Verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. We are to be pitied more than all men. Or look at verse 32, for example. If the dead are not raised, then we may as well give up. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But even there, we know that we would find no solace, no joy, only self-destruction and despair. If there's no resurrection from the dead, we might well pity the Christian who's suffering now and hoping for something better in vain. We might well pity them. But to give it all up and join the world around us, wouldn't leave us a great deal better off when we come to think of it. We know that because when we, when we look around at the people around us who have no resurrection hope, there is also much to pity. So we might go into the city centre on a Saturday night, for example, and watch people desperately, sadly, tragically pursuing a, a sort of transitory flash of pleasure or, or, or desperately just trying to shut down their minds altogether and to forget the hopelessness of their condition. We might travel back then to the, to the leafy suburbs and, and, uh, here in, in Fullwood and find it not much better, actually, and watch the kind of frantic accumulation of stuff all around us as people desperately try to make something out of the brief window of opportunity they have before they die. Watch the quiet despair of middle-class prosperity. There is much to pity Sadly, we know that from personal experience, too. Uh, we should pity these things, but instead, as I was saying in the beginning, we tend to copy them instead. We, we are, our, our faith in the resurrection weakens, and we lapse into those things, too. But as we look at ourselves and as we do those things, we have to look at all that extra time at work, for example, all that accumulation of stuff and experiences, all that treasure building, as, as Jesus puts it. We know, we know that actually there's no comfort in it. There's no real security in it. There's even, if we're honest, not really very much pleasure in it. It too, in the end, is pitiable. Wherever we look, 
if there's no resurrection of the dead, all we see is emptiness and despair. In other words, for us too, for us too, we would have to be very sure, very sure that there is no resurrection before resigning ourselves to such a pitiable condition. But am I very sure that there is no resurrection? No, I'm not. Indeed, all the evidence and the argument goes the other way. So certainly we should face the void. But contemplating the void of a world without resurrection should leave us embracing the truth wholeheartedly in the end. So let me implore you this morning. Re-believe the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's a historically attested fact. Christ is indeed raised from the dead. And that's only the beginning of what God is doing in the world. The beginning of the victory his son is winning on our behalf. A victory that culminates in the resurrection of the dead. It's not just an idle speculation or a a debating point or, or even an article of doctrine. It's not just those things. This is real, concrete, future life. Something that we can be a part of. And as we embrace it, we can be sure that our labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together.